as they as they commit mass murder in the city squares uh, of the of these cities, as they they bulldoze girls' schools, you know, as they as they eliminate you know all of the gains that were made uh, after the after the demise of the Taliban regime in 2001, should we just stand idly by, based on you know really the recognition that that we had deluded ourselves? Shouldn't we now reassess our actions and and do what is I think not only in our interest, but I, but I think is is morally imperative at this stage. What we're actually seeing is the reversal of morality. That was H.R. McMaster, one of Donald Trump's national security advisors, speaking Thursday about the startling Taliban advances in Afghanistan and what they could mean for the war-torn country as U.S. troops complete their pullout. In the last few weeks, Taliban forces have swept through northern provinces of that country, capturing hundreds of Afghan soldiers, seizing control of provincial capitals. On Wednesday night, the U.S. Embassy in Kabul tweeted that it had reports of the Taliban executing Afghan troops in ways that could constitute war crimes. And on Thursday came the news that Herat, the country's third largest city, had fallen. As the U.S. accelerates its withdrawal, the specter of a Taliban takeover and a bloody aftermath hangs over the Bush administration. It also threatens to dominate the news as the country prepares to commemorate next month's 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks that caused us to invade Afghanistan in the first place. We'll talk to Elliot Ackerman, a novelist, historian, and retired Marine who served four tours in Afghanistan, about what to expect in the weeks ahead. And then we'll talk to Washington Post reporters Carol Lennick and Phil Rucker about their book, I Alone Can Fix It, a gripping account of the last year of Donald Trump's presidency on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And our co-host, Victoria Bassetti, is still on vacation. She will be returning soon. But uh, we have a lot to talk about. I think this uh, the Afghan news is so huge and you know, I think is going to be getting only more attention as we move up to that 9-11 anniversary. I mean, when Biden announced the U.S. pullout back in April, some PR genius in the White House thought, well, let's say we'll pull out by September 11th, as though that was somehow going to sort of be a capstone on our experience in Afghanistan. I don't think they ever anticipated that what we would be looking at by September 11th is an actual Taliban takeover of the country. It's hard to imagine a greater PR bonanza for the Taliban or a worse black eye for the United States than to have that happen. Look, I think the White House probably expected there was a pretty good likelihood that the Taliban uh, would take over the country, that the government in, in Kabul would fall. I don't think they were expecting it would happen as soon as uh, September 11th. And if they had, they would not have chosen that as the date for the withdrawal. Yeah, they wanted they wanted the uh, elusive, decent interval that Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon were hoping for when they pulled out of Vietnam and signed the, uh, the, the peace agreement uh, with the North Vietnamese. They actually did get a little bit of an interval a year or so. Of course, Nixon had his other troubles to deal with. But this seems like there's no interval at all. The other way to look at it, as I think we might hear from Elliot Ackerman, I think there was uh, something of an interval when Obama, you know, back in 2009, surged uh, troops uh, to Afghanistan, and we ended up with 100,000 more forces there, but on the other hand said that they would all be out by 2014, which he got a lot of criticism for at the time, because he was announcing to the Taliban that we were not committed to uh, staying for the long haul. And look, you know, it's easy to be armchair quarterbacks here, but you do have to acknowledge that this was going to be an extremely difficult thing to do, no matter what. And you always have to ask yourself in our business, well, what was the alternative? And the reality is that 
We had fought the Taliban uh, to a standstill, and um, there was no evidence that we were changing the dynamics uh, on the ground there. And, you know, strategically, uh, you had to ask yourself, how long could we do this? How long could we make this investment? And are there other parts of the world, you know, where our interests, you know, were more important right now? I mean, look, you take a country like Somalia. Somalia has probably a greater threat to the United States with al-Qaeda still being there, the Shabab. We're not occupying Somalia. We are fighting there. We are doing drone strikes, but we're not occupying the country. We don't have a major troop presence there. So these aren't easy questions. And, yeah. you know, Look, I, 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 I totally agree. And, you know, back when Biden announced it and, you know, before that, I uh, sympathized with the idea that these were that this was a forever war uh, for which there was no end in sight. And uh, we were propping up a corrupt government whose military just, you know, could not stand on its own despite all the time and, and money we had poured into it uh, to fight the Taliban. I get that, and that's, I think, what motivated Biden. But I think what people, when people are, you know, there are no good options, but when you look at what we're staring at right now, which is, you know, the prospect of this horrendous, you know, Taliban takeover and even a, you know, Khmer Rouge-like purge of the country, mass bloodbaths uh, uh, of people who worked for us, worked with us, were our partners. It's a pretty grim outlook. One other caveat here is because, you know, we seem to these days see everything through a political lens, and that shapes public opinion because of our media. And the critics, um, you know, normally would be mostly, you know, on, on the right. The difference here is that this is a policy that was started by, well, really started by, by Obama, again, I guess, but, but accelerated by Trump. Trump has not been out there criticizing Biden for this decision. I think I saw that um, Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, uh, actually uh, was on Fox News or somewhere agreeing with it. So I don't know that you're going to get the same kind of criticism from Republicans on this issue as you might on well, a lot of other issues. Well, you will from Liz Cheney. You will from Liz Cheney you will, you will and Adam the, Kinzinger from, right, and the a, Republicans. But, but, we okay, have been celebrating Liz, on this podcast right. are going to be the fiercest critics. Now, how much traction they will get on that, uh, I don't know. But I think a lot is going to depend on how ugly it gets. Right now, it looks like it could get very ugly. And before we get to our great Washington Post reporters uh, to talk about uh, their book about the last year of Donald Trump's presidency. We're going to talk to Elliot Ackerman, who served four tours in Afghanistan and has got a lot to say on the subject. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us Elliot Ackerman, a novelist, uh, writer, and uh, a uh, retired Marine who served four tours in Afghanistan. Elliot, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So we had you on back in April when Biden announced that the U.S. would be pulling out. At that point, he said by September 11th, you made the case that this was the wrong decision at the time, that the relatively small contingent of U.S. troops we had in there could help preserve the peace and the, and the Afghan government. Obviously, that's not where the president was, and that's not where most of the country was on this issue after years of what seemed like endless wars. But over the last weeks, we have seen this startling advance of the Taliban, much more rapid than anybody expected. Are you surprised by how quickly the Taliban has been advancing in Afghanistan? And do you think it makes the argument you were making some months ago even stronger than it was at the time? I'm not surprised. I'm surprised that people are surprised, frankly. I mean, if I'm feeling any type of surprise. But do you think the White House was prepared for the startling advances of yeah. the Taliban, that they would be controlling two thirds of the country? Um, I, don't know if uh, sur- I don't know if they were if they were prepared necessarily. I don't know what prepared means. But I, I find it very hard to believe that anyone in the White House is that surprised. 
I think, and it depends who we're talking about. You know, if we're talking about people in the Department of Defense, I mean, there wasn't total unanimity in the White House and in the Biden administration that this was the appropriate course of action. Obviously, it was the president's decision to pull all the troops out of Afghanistan, but you know, many senior defense officials didn't think this was, this was necessarily the right move. I believe Defense Secretary Austin didn't want us to pull all the troops out. So, you know, there's not just lockstep unanimity within the White House. Listen, I think the reason I'm not surprised that all of this is what's happening is, I mean, listen, one of the great dictums about war, which was said by Carl von Clausewitz in his book On War, is that war is politics by other means. We all know this. So this is politics. A very significant political decision was made, and you're seeing the ramifications of that politics, which is a complete and total vote of no confidence in the Afghan government now that the United States has basically said, hey, we're, we're through here. So this isn't, to me, this is not surprising that this would happen once the United States indicates that Afghanistan is no longer going to be really under our sphere of influence, at least not in the way that it has been previously. What do you expect in the next um, few weeks and months? I expect Kabul will fall. Afghanistan will be run by the Taliban and will turn largely into a black hole of our own creation. Do you think, Elliot, that uh, the Taliban will go back to where it was when it ruled the country before 9-11 in terms of its uh, repression of people, its kind of medieval ways? Or or is that going to be harder for them now after the Afghan people have lived with some degree of, of freedom for a number, you know, for, for 20 years now? I think the question kind of asks, do we believe that the, ta- the Taliban will be in some way chastised by having fought a 20-year war and inheriting a population that has lived with some degree of freedom, at least in urban centers. No, I don't believe they will. I don't believe that they view themselves as chastised. I believe they view themselves as vindicated in the most triumphant and glorious manner possible, a triumph maybe only paralleled by them besting the Soviets and besting the British in the 19th century. I think for the Taliban, that is absolutely the narrative they will apply to this. I don't think they're necessarily out of line for applying that narrative. And I think they will feel emboldened to implement their views and their way of life on otherwise reluctant Afghans. So uh, I am not optimistic for what this means for freedom-loving Afghans in that country. Well, certainly, given the reports of what's happening on the ground uh, in recent days, there's not much reason for encouragement there. We, uh, the U.S. Embassy in, in Kabul tweeted last night about uh, reports about Afghan soldiers who surrendered being executed by the Taliban. There's been you know, attacks on hospitals, on schools. Michael, I don't know if you saw just an hour ago, the U.S. Embassy has announced that it is moving from its, uh, its grounds to the airport. In Kabul. So the U.S. Embassy is, as of today, located at the Kabul International Airport. So it does feel like we're going to be looking at scenes like the last days of Saigon in, in 1975. Well, I think what is so I think what is so dispiriting in many ways is maybe we will or maybe we won't because we'll do what we did in Bagram, which to me was shameful to our Afghan allies, which is we just basically told no one we were leaving and we left and slunk out of there in the middle of the night. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm sorry, like, don't we have any decency? What is there to say for our national honor? Like, you, you don't, I'm not saying I don't get hot about many things, but like, you don't behave this way. Like, this is shameful. Elliot, can you just, rem- can you just remind us from our previous conversation what you believe the strategy should have been as opposed to what happened. I mean, we we had we were down to 2,500 troops on the ground, and of course there was a co- there was a coalition force as well, and we used that to leverage Afghan troops. But we had essentially at, at best fought to a stalemate with the Taliban. The ta- Taliban have been in the ascendancy for a long time. In terms of you know the the strategy, what could and what should the United States have done? And what was what do you think the best possible outcome could have been if they had done you know sure. the things that you think they should have done? Uh, I, I mean, I mean, l- listen, uh, I don't love the armchair quarterbacking game because you know if, you, if you've been in a war, you know war is messy, it's sloppy, it is not these are not easy jobs to do. But I, I would say let's take a long term and a short term view. Long term, you know, one of the dictums, sort of the famous sayings in Afghanistan when I was there, was 
and this is a tal- so member of the Taliban saying this to an American, you all might have the watches, but we have the time. I mean, you might have all the technological sophistication that you have, but you don't have the time. The only way we could have won this war was by convincing the Taliban that no, we've got the watches and we've got the time. We're not going anywhere. That doesn't mean there's going to be 150,000 US troops there, but that means the combination of the Afghan government with Americans is not going anywhere. It is strong. And we, we did it in Korea. We did it in, we did it in Germany. Well, look at us. We're not going anywhere. Now, that strategy was immediate. That strategy, I could say, was undermined as far back as 2009 when President Obama announced, ran saying, originally, Iran saying Iraq was the wrong war, which I agree with. Afghanistan was the righteous war. Bush got distracted. We need to refocus on the right war, which was Afghanistan. And he did that. But in his 2009 speech, in which he announced the surge, in which 150,000 US troops are going to Afghanistan, in the very same speech at West Point, he said, and they will all be leaving by 2014. Immediately, you're saying to the Taliban, you've got the time. Just wait, 2014, we're leaving. And I was in Afghanistan when that speech was given. And I tell you, I would go, you know, politics is, or war is politics. It's very retail. I would sit with village elder after village elder talking to them about why they needed to support this initiative or that initiative. And they would say, but how can I help you? I mean, you know, yes, you want to do this and that would be great, but you're going to be gone in 2014. And I have a Taliban shadow governor and he's going to kill me when you leave. So we never convinced the Afghan people thoroughly enough that we were never going to go. We were never going to abandon them. Whatever that meant, we will never abandon you. And so now we can go up to today, right? So before this announcement, you know, we've done a decent enough job, I mean, building an Afghan military that was taking the fight to the Taliban in so much as they weren't being overrun by the Taliban. We had 3,000 troops thereabouts in Afghanistan. U.S. combat deaths in 2020 were three. Three. Now, listen, that's tragic. You don't want to see U.S. service members ever dying. But there were more American service members killed in Camp Pendleton, California. That's one Marine Corps base in training accidents than in all of Afghanistan. There were more troops stationed at the Capitol by two times in the months after January 6th to secure the U.S. Capitol than in all of Afghanistan. So we'd spent the blood. We'd spent the treasure. But what does it say, Elliot, about our investment there that after 20 years, we couldn't build an Afghan military that was capable of withstanding the Taliban for for like, you know, weeks after we pulled out. Politics. This isn't as though like, if you watch what's happening right now, it's not like pitched battles are happening and Afghan soldiers are giving it at all. You're seeing all the members of the Afghan government, they're all cutting deals now. It's like they're the Americans are leaving. So first of all, in the places where you are seeing fighting going on, what you're also seeing is we're not bringing to bear as Americans, what we used to bring to bear for the Afghan military, which was their great advantage. So the airstrikes aren't coming. The intelligence aircraft isn't there. The medevac aircraft isn't there. We're not doing this for them but, anymore. But, but Elliot, the point that Danny was making here is the Afghan army, we spent hundreds of billions of dollars trying to prop up, has simply evaporated. It's as though, you know, all that money was wasted if we could not assemble an army that could withstand a Taliban assault within a few weeks. Right. But you're, you're, you're saying that comment is speaking as though it's absent of any political conditions. We saw this happen in Iraq in 2014 when you had in Iraq, you had the same thing happen. The entire Iraqi military just vanished in the face of ISIS. It didn't mean they were no longer effective. It was politics in Iraq had just had dissolved with what the Maliki government was doing with and the- But the isn't that also an American failure that we were not able to- Yes, it is. It's, it is absolutely, because we pulled out in 2011 and we said basically, Iraq, we don't care about you anymore. And then suddenly the Islamic State emerges- no. I mean had- in Afghanistan, I mean in Afghanistan, that we were not, we've not been able to, to build any capacity on the political side. But my point is that the, the, the political capacity we bring, when we walk, we can't, you can't walk away from Afghanistan and basically say to them, we don't care. You're on your own, guys. And expect- I, that's pretty much what we've said, isn't it? I know. And you can't expect there's not going to be a massive, that that's going to not cause a massive crisis of confidence in the Afghan government, which it has, which has led to the collapse, the political collapse of its military. I mean, so it's like, listen, I'm just, I'm not surprised. And so what was the alternative, right? What was the alternative? Well, what would have happened? What would have happened if we 
left 3,000 troops there, which seemed to be holding the line, continued to support the Afghans when they needed an airstrikes in what is really their civil war, and didn't see the collapse. To me, like I'm like, this is, you know, that is a far less, I'm like, hey, listen, man, I'm no warmonger here. Like, I, I am truly, I don't like seeing, I, you know, I've seen it. I don't ever want to see it again. And, and so, but what's the more risky path now? So now we're going to have a black hole in Afghanistan. What's going to crawl out of that black hole? If you look at what happened in Iraq, the Islamic State crawled out of that black hole. What's going to crawl out of Afghanistan? Now, with regards to the Taliban, Afghanistan has always been, as opposed to Iraq, a far more diffuse country. So it's not like there's ever been a history of strong centralized governmental control in Afghanistan. So the idea that the Taliban are going to—they haven't—they were never able to assert that even in the 1990s. So what's going? What weird stuff is going to start incubating in Afghanistan? And listen, what's the answer? I don't know. And but but we've seen anytime you create a power vacuum, all sorts of bad stuff floods into that vacuum. That's what's happened in the past. And I hope nothing weird that's in the gamble the Biden administration is making right now is that nothing is going to crawl out of that black hole to come bite the United States. And I just think it's listen, I think strategically, it's a very risky gamble, even if, you know, you don't care about some of the things that obviously get me, you know, that get me emotional, things like our national honor, like there's no dignity in this. Uh, if you don't care about any of that, hey, fair enough, maybe you don't. But even so, just from a purely real politique, pragmatic viewpoint, I don't understand the strategy. For the cost of 3,000 US troops and kind of very strong diplomatic singles that our two countries are together, that we're insoluble, that is not a very high political price to pay versus this. And I think it's a far less risky one. And in the long term, it's going to cost us a lot less in blood and treasure. So I think this is, this is like when we left Afghanistan to its own devices after the Soviets left. I don't uh, think you, you served uh, four tours in Afghanistan. Did you serve in the places that have been recently taken over by the Taliban? And have you heard from any of the Afghans you served with uh, in the last few weeks about uh, what they're experiencing? Every place that I served in Afghanistan is now under Taliban control. And uh, yes, I have you know heard from old Afghan compatriots of mine. Um, you know, many of whom are in the United States now. And uh, I think, you know, to a T, all of them are concerned about their extended families and are, you know, working like hell to try to get them out, those who, those who still remain. Do, do you think we're going to see a bloodbath? We're already, we're already seeing one. And, and what about your, you know, your, your brothers and sisters in arms, uh, the people who you served with, the Americans who you served with there, or, uh, sadly, the family members, the parents of, of those who died there. What's the conversation with them right now in this moment? Uh, I mean, well, first of all, I'll say I don't, you know, I, I only speak for myself. I mean, everyone has, who sort of has a whole host of emotions about this that are complicated. So I'll just speak for myself. I think it's complicated. You know, I, you know, I served in Iraq, Iraq too. And when we left Iraq, I would say I feel more, you know, viscerally emotional about this one. I think Iraq was always the wrong war when I was in Iraq. I think we all kind of knew, like, this is not going well. And maybe this was an ill-advised endeavor, even though, you know, we were the ones fighting in it. I think the thing that is, and I was I was actually talking to a friend of mine who served in Afghanistan with me. And, um, and we were, and he was also an Iraq war veteran. And we were trying to understand why this one feels different. And I think one of the reasons just kind of personally for us, it felt different. It was like, listen, you know, this is the 20 year of September 11th, right? So um, let me just wait. There's an old bit of gallows humor amongst GIs. It's a joke. It goes like this. Knock, knock. Who's, Who's there? there? September 11th. September 11th who? I thought you said never forget. Hmm. Yeah. So what does well, that mean? Like, what yeah. does that mean? We, you know, that's what we would say after 9-11. So we remember why we were in Afghanistan. It was for September 11th. I get it, 20 years have passed and a lot of people have forgotten, like, that's why we were there. And it was only the second time the United States had gone to war predicated on an attack on our homeland. The time before that was Pearl Harbor. And that was a war that we won decisively. And this is how the second time, this is how that second war ends. And that is a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah. And uh, a point I made in the introduction, as things are developing, the Taliban takeover could well be complete or on the verge of 
by September 11th itself. And, and the, you know what? The Taliban are very smart when it comes to it was my information operations. I it would not surprise me at all if they chose the day to roll into Kabul as September 11th, 2020. And that that would be a a PR bonanza for them. Yeah. You know, un, unlike anything I can think of, and and a PR disaster for the United States. Wouldn't surprise me at all. You know, um, Elliot, I think I know the answer to this question or what you what your answer will be, but you're hearing discussion about the sort of over-the-horizon strategy that um, even though we will not have forces on the ground there, that, uh, you know, we'll still have some intelligence capability, surveillance, um, some airstrikes if, if necessary. Uh, do you put any faith at all in, in, in that kind of remote strategy that's being talked about? No. Because... Because it's not practical, it's not realistic, it's not working right now. You have to be on the ground. Anyone, anyone who's served a day in uniform or ever fought on a battlefield knows at a certain point, you know, you regardless of the technology, you need to, you know, you need to be, you need to have someone there to tell you where to put the, you know, where to put in the airstrikes. You need, you need, you need that level of responsiveness. It, it's not going to work. And you know, frankly, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a line. It's, it's, it's a line. It's not working. And so, guess what? So. So Kabul falls. Now what? What? Where are airstrikes? Oh, it's no longer relevant. I mean, you know, then they, they tried to. They, they, there was this argument that we were going to do that um, if the Taliban tried to advance in any cities, and we just saw in Kunduz what happened. You know, our, our airstrikes were totally irrelevant. So no, I put no credence in it. When, won't there be quite a bit of robust activity for U.S. special forces in the years ahead? That won't, if you're right that you know out of this black hole bad stuff will emerge, then we will have to be sending U.S. special forces there time and again, no? Uh, yeah, or you'll be sending U.S. conventional forces back into Afghanistan. Yeah, well, that that's a harder political sell. But, you know, they, they do the special forces stuff. You know, that's uh, classified. We don't often learn about it. You know, Look what this happened is when done. the Islamic State started machine gunning people at the Bataclan in Paris. Guess what? U.S. conventional forces went right back into Syria and back into Iraq. So, I mean, I don't know what to tell you guys. Like, this is a bad strategy. I, I it makes no, it makes, it, listen, I would be sympathetic to this strategy if this was like, you know, we had 130,000 troops still in Afghanistan 20 years later, and we were taking 150 dead GIs a week. And I finally said, I, it's just too painful. It's too excruciating for us. We can't take it anymore. We're done. This is like, I mean, I gave you those numbers. 3,000 U.S. troops, 2020, you have three guys killed in action. And we, and to give you models, I mean, yes, like I've talked to you guys about like, listen, like Germany, Tokyo, you know, Japan, we've done this around the world. We also done it in South America for years. Look at Colombia. We had US troops in Colombia and Peru for years and years and years fighting very low intensity on our part, very low intensity conflict wars, very low intensity conflict engagements, virtual, very low US casualty numbers, while the engagements in those countries themselves, like particularly in Colombia, were very kinetic. And we kept the lid on those things. And in the case of Colombia, that was a very, very, very long war that actually ended in our benefit and to our advantage. How, how much of a kind of a strategic black guy do you think this is for the United States? I mean, that it will invite our enemies around the world to say that the United States uh, doesn't have the stomach, uh, you know, can't finish the job, is a feckless giant. Or is that the, is that the wrong way to think about it? Is that not how you think about it? To me, I was saying, to me, I was thinking about this this morning, just watching the news roll in, and, and with regards to, like, I think Biden has said a little bit of his legacy right now. You know, we look back, right? We can look back, for instance, like Clinton. You know, what was the great moral, moral failure of Clinton? You know, Rwanda. I think we all remember what he did in Rwanda. He never stopped that genocide. All right. Bush, Iraq. I would argue for Obama, it was really Syria and his mismanagement of Syria. I think for Biden, it's going to be Afghanistan. We've done here. Well, on that grim note, I want to uh, thank you for joining us once again on Skullduggery and um, uh, your advice that uh, we'll want to uh, keep hearing from as uh, events unfold. So thanks again, Elliot. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Elliot.
All right, we've now got with us Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker of the Washington Post and the authors of the best-selling book, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year. Carol and Phil, welcome back to Skullduggery for Carol. Phil, welcome for the first time. <laughs> Thank you for having us. This is great. Well, the book is just a phenomenal read. As I was saying before we started taping, it was quite reminiscent to me of when I first read The Final Days by Woodward and Bernstein about the last days of Richard Nixon's presidency. And this was uh, evocative of many of the same themes that came through in that one. But I want to start out with uh, something that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but seems very on point to uh, the news of this week. And that is the discussion you have about Trump's plan pull out from Afghanistan. You've gotten a lot of attention for what you have in the book about uh, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, and other military leaders who were just frantically freaking out about what Donald Trump might do in his last days as president. But one of the things that hasn't got much attention is that, according to your book, Milley and other members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff were prepared to resign after the election because of Trump's pullout from Afghanistan and that the Pentagon leaders, you write, worried about a Saigon situation with a chaotic last-minute exit and desperate people rushing to a roof rooftop to catch the last helicopter out. The Joint Chiefs discussed this. Milley would, would be the first to resign, and then if that didn't do the trick, to stop Trump from pulling out of Afghanistan. The others would resign. It was, it was you write, a kind of Saturday night massacre in reverse, an informal blockade that would keep in their back pockets if it ever came to that. I thought that was fascinating because that they were willing to go that far to stop Trump from pulling out. And then also because Milley and the rest of them are all still there, while Biden has, seems to have done exactly what they were prepared to quit over, and yet they haven't done so. So just give us a little bit on why the Joint Chiefs felt so strongly at the time about this and why we haven't heard word one from them while Biden is doing exactly what they were protesting just six or seven months ago. Carol, you want to take that first? Yeah, I, I was going to say I'm really glad you fix your sights on that moment because it is very dramatic for lots of reasons. And and that element of it hasn't gotten a lot of attention about Afghanistan. It does bring us full forward to today. I would quibble, though, uh, with the idea that it's exactly the same thing Biden is doing now, the Biden administration is doing now, because what those chairmen, what the chairman and the Joint Chiefs were the most worried about was twofold. One, the president giving them an order that they found was uh, an effort or a veiled effort to consolidate power and block the peaceful transfer of power to the future president. And then secondly, just have a wag the dog moment of, again, pulling out of Afghanistan really quickly to create distraction, create a little bit of chaos, or as, as the president was wont to do, create a great headline. You know, I ended an endless war. The anxiety that chiefs had was this idea of a rash pullout. Again, imagine Saigon and the helicopter on the roof. They were worried about an unplanned rash decision that would be solely for the president's MO, which is nailing a great news cycle. And that, that plot that they had discussed privately was really twofold, again, Let's make sure we have a plan if the president tries to order the military to do something that's dangerous or unethical or or illegal. Those things all worried them. And Afghanistan was just one. Well, as I guess the two points on that one is Trump had been pretty consistent that he wanted to pull out from Afghanistan from the get go. Right. I mean, forever wars. He wanted to end them. 
the war we were a lose it was a loser war as you write so in one sense one could argue he was simply fulfilling you know one of his original campaign promises right in trying to pull out at the end and then also it just the con- you know when one looks at the hurried withdrawal right now from Afghanistan which Biden has pulled pushed up to August 31st having initially set it for September 11th and reading the reports from the field it looks every bit as chaotic now as what the joint chiefs were worried about back then well they were worried just to one more sentence on that what they were really really worried about was a plot they heard about in the white house where various whispers in the president's ear, President Trump's ear, were like, let's just do it all in one day, or maybe we can do it all in two days. And that, you know, you don't just send a bunch of buses into, you know, <laughs> uh, key Afghanistan cities and, and ship everybody out. There's a lot of protective equipment. There's a lot of stuff you're not going to leave behind for the Taliban to collect. All of those things were big worries of theirs. And they knew it wasn't a worry of Donald Trump's. Let me bring Phil into this and sticking with uh, General Milley, because I think he, as much as anyone, personifies one of the major themes uh, of your book, which is the lengths to which um, so many top advisors to uh, Donald Trump felt that they needed to be human rail guards to protect the country and our democracy from catastrophe. And I guess having explored that kind of rationalization with all of these people. I mean, Bill Barr is a, f- a fascinating example of that, the attorney general in this book, Millie, Alex Azar, I mean, so many of them. How do you feel after having done all of this reporting and talking and talked to so many sources about that rationalization, how effective they were at actually being rail guards, and what would have happened if uh, they hadn't uh, done that? You know, it's an important question, and I I think the answer is pretty nuanced because, you know, history shows they were not terribly effective in serving as guardrails because President Trump did a lot of things that that they uh, would have resisted and that damaged the country and to some degree. But on the extreme measures, and and by that I mean the period after the election when the president and his allies were actively scheming, plotting to effectively overthrow the democracy, to remain in power despite the will of the people in the election. On that front, you know, Milley and some of these other figures were effective in in preventing a, a, a calamity to our institution from taking place. Of course, the insurrection occurred, lives were lost. Um, that was catastrophic and, and, you know, scarring for the nation, but democracy still held. And there's a world in which it may not have held were it not for people like General Milley who were on guard in that period. But, you know, look, they these advisors to the president and and mind you, at the beginning of Trump's term, they were different advisors because the cast of characters kept changing. But they found that early on they could influence him more because he was so naive about how government worked. But very quickly, uh, he shut them out. And after the Ukraine impeachment, when he survived without really any accountability for what he did in Ukraine and after making it through the Mueller investigation without any you know, real meaningful accountability for his actions. Trump believed he was, you know, king and that the laws didn't apply to him and that he could do what he wanted to do and enact what he wanted to enact. And if the people working for him weren't going to help him do it, he was just going to get rid of them and find new people. And so that was the reality that a lot of these figures were grappling with. So they had to pick and choose, you know, when they were really going to function as a guardrail and stand up to him or when they were going to let something slide in order to maintain maintain their own power and their own jobs. I just want to follow up with, uh, I want to hear you guys talk a little bit about Bill Barr, the attorney general. Um, Isakoff and I covered him way back when he was attorney general the first time. We certainly, on this podcast, uh, our thinking about Barr evolved. We didn't expect him to kind of go quite as far as he did in, in, you know, sort of backing up Trump at almost every turn, and some would say being a a sycophant to Trump. But Barr evolved as well over the course of his tenure as attorney general. And it's kind of an instructive evolution. Tell us about Barr and uh, what drove him at the outset early on and then what happened to him where at the end he quit and broke pretty strongly with Trump. What, what is that story? 
I think, you know, we have a lot in common in terms of uh, covering the Justice Department and the really the culture of blind justice, right? Objective blind justice. And what Barr did at the very outset, even though people in 2019 were viewing him as this eminence grease, this very serious person who was going to come in and bring adulthood to the Department of Justice after Jeff Sessions departed, even despite that, he was a political political ideologue. And his motivation was to help Donald Trump politically uh, in every way. And it was sort of surprising. And he he needs to own the way in which he crossed the lines, um, misleading the public about the Mueller findings. You know, they found in four cases, gross, huge evidence of uh, obstruction of justice. And to say that that didn't happen was bizarre. But in every turn, as you say, he worked to help Donald Trump get reelected. But in the spring of 2020, Phil and I learned he went to the president privately, trying not to embarrass him in front of others, and just tell him, I think you're going to lose the election, boss, because you're wasting the capital you have in the way you're handling COVID. And even your ardent supporters out there in the red states are getting a little nervous about this pandemic and the weird things you're doing on stage, so to speak, in these press conferences where you're disagreeing with your medical experts. And that got more, that was the first sign, but then there are two more things that happen in that relationship. The second one is Barr becomes a bulwark against Trump's constant constant insistence over the summer of 2020 that the way he's going to make himself look strong and win win his base is to sick the active duty military on American cities where protesters are protesting the death and killing of George Floyd and systemic racism in police departments. And it feels like to bar that every time he goes to the Oval Office, he's blocking Donald Trump's proclivity towards this kind of law and order presidency, which Barr thinks could turn into another Waco. He ends up being basically a heat shield along with Esper and and Milley, the Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chief, to stop that. But the, the real end of the relationship comes in November, uh, late November and early December, when privately Barr is talking to McConnell about the president's refusal to concede and the way in which this is insane. And somebody is gonna have to tell the emperor that they're, that he has no clothes. And Barr decides to be the person, um, as he told confidence, confidants, who jumps on the grenade. <laughs> and he decides to be the person that, that tells Trump and it's the end. Can I pick up on that? Because your account of that December 1st meeting is so vivid and so dramatic. And just to sort of set the stage, Barr has just given a uh, interview to the AP in which he says publicly that the Justice Department has no evidence of uh, fraud sufficient to overturn the results of the election. He's got a meeting at the White House later that day. He's instru- he's told the president wants to, to see him uh, immediately. He goes into the Oval, finds Trump watching OANN, the uh, right-wing news outlet that uh, didn't think Fox was going far enough in protecting Trump. And then just some of what you write happened at that meeting. Trump's voice got ever louder. He started yelling. He was so angry, his words came out like spit. The president was explosive and crazed. His limbs and torso moved jerkily as if uncontrolled, and his eyes widened with anger at some of Barr's responses. And just taking a step back here, I guess this is a perennial question when it comes to Trump, but it's so starkly framed by your by this account and your whole book. And that is, at the end of the day, is the guy just out of his mind or is there a method to his madness? Phil, you take that first. Well, that, that's a tricky question for us to answer in part just because we're, you know, we're not experts on on uh, psychological health and we're not, you know, we can't diagnose him. Uh, he is exactly as as we described in that passage you just read. And a lot of the people who work for him did not think he was of sound mind 
all the time and and had concerns about his his mental health but you know we're not we're not psychologists i will say there's a little bit of a method to the madness and that is to always keep people on their toes it, it's sort of a strategy he had in real estate and in reality television and of, of course as a politician and and as president that he wanted to keep people su surprised he wanted to sort of create drama and chaos everywhere because he thought that he could thrive in that kind of an environment and it would leave his adversaries and also his allies very unsettled and you know uncertain of what he was going to do next and and feeling like they always needed to try to please him that that was the environment he tried to build around himself right. and also by the way a method he used in his dealing with reporters i mean i oh, remember the, the, yeah. the one time when i had a scheduled interview with trump this is before he became president i was at nbc at the time and the night before he calls me up i had never spoken to him before and just screams at me in much the same way you recount him screaming at at Bill Barr and others, and um, you know, I was holding the <laughs> the phone away from my ear, listening to his expletives. And yet, the next day, he gave me the interview that I had requested. And afterwards, even though it was quite confrontational interview, he invites me up to his office at Trump Tower and just wants to chat political yeah. gossip. And you know, coming around to your own final interview with Trump at Mar-a-Lago as you're finishing up the book, as you describe it, he's perfectly matter-of-fact, pleasant at times, solicitous of your views. I mean, it's really hard to um, sort of put those two images together of Trump the madman and Trump the seemingly char uh, charming host for you. I was just going to say, I think that's right. It's very hard to square the two personalities. And, and you know, your description there is exactly why so many people have concluded by observing him that there's something going on. But he, he's just all over the map and you never know what Trump you're going to get. And But is that is that why is that part of the reason maybe that that people who work for him, who otherwise might be decent, upstanding people can rationalize working for him because they see those two sides of, of Trump. They, they think there is a side to him that is more decent. I have to say, I, I was so struck. And, the, you know, these are things that we know about Donald Trump, the narcissism, the deep lack of, of empathy. But over and over again, whether it's about COVID, where he is, you know, putting so much pressure on the FDA to get the uh, the vaccines approved before the election, whether that's safe or not, or or to to get them to approve uh, hydrochloroquine uh, to treat COVID, you know, or even that rally in Oklahoma where where he didn't want anyone tested because he didn't want that to get out, or they wanted the 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 signs uh, that said "Don't sit here" removed, the signs that would have allowed them to uh, to have people socially distance there. I mean, that. His political needs, his ego always takes a backseat to other people's health, you know, their, their, their ability to survive a, a virus. So how do people rationalize continuing to, to work for him? And I guess one thing I want to know is, do you think people will work for him a second time around if he runs for president again, which a lot of people think he will? Or do you think he'll have a harder time attracting Advisors, I, that was a, a. There's a lot in that question there, but, but. <laughs> I'll take a crack. But I'll Carol, crack. I think you're. Yeah, you can. You can. Um, you can interpret me well. So you you are hitting the nail on the head about something that really made our jaws drop in our reporting, which was the degree to which, you know, we thought we were covering this in real time pretty well, and we knew how chaotic and and insane at, at moments it was, but behind the scenes. There were all these cabinet members and top officials and White House advisors, all of whom wanted to see Trump succeed, wanted his wanted to help him execute his agenda. And their hair was on fire privately as they tried to figure out why in the world he was willing to put American lives in peril for a momentary tweet that he thought would be successful in the evening news or the or the morning news cycle, why he was willing to put democracy in this undermined and weakened state. Also, he could claim that he wasn't a loser. The lack of empathy for American lives during COVID was probably the most striking. And I'm thinking of an example in which, again, we were sort of shocked that the president when confronted with his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, his deputy secretary of state, 
and in, and his health and human services secretary, they come to him in the spring and they say, okay, Wuhan is locked down. The Chinese have closed the borders. The the virus has taken over and they're trying to control it by, by closing the region of Hubei province. And they're like, we need to get the Americans out who work for the U.S. Right. government. And Trump is, says initially, absolutely not. That what if those people are sick? That's going to make my numbers go up. Those people shouldn't have been in China. What were they even doing there? Now, keep in mind, like, just as our jaws dropped hearing this, so did the jaws drop of the people listening to the president on that conference call. You know, Steve Began, the deputy secretary of state, was like, that would be like leaving our troops on the field of battle and hightailing it out of here. These are, you know, U.S government employees. Eventually the president relents, but that concept, which is my numbers, right? My numbers are more important than the lives of people who are trapped in Wuhan um, and are only there to serve us. How do people rationalize it? I think what, what we learned over and over again in these interviews was that people were afraid, two reasons, afraid of what Donald Trump might do to them if they confronted him or contradicted him. You know, they'd seen the famous and, and unceremonious firing by tweet, the ruining of your reputation. But second, they were worried about who would replace them. And, you know, we found that in our first three years of the Trump presidency, but it was life or death in 2020. People were actually worried if I go, he's going to get somebody in here who just completely serves up what he wants to hear and then and then where will we be with american lives so your first book about him a uh, very stable genius was uh, was pretty tough on trump and uh, exposed a lot of the you know same themes uh, that you have in this book and yet as you're wrapping it up he agrees to talk to you and give you an extensive interview, which goes on for like three hours, if I'm recalling correctly. Why did he talk to you and what was it like? Yeah, well, you're right that in, for the first book, he declined uh, our request to be interviewed and then he trashed the book. He hated the cover, he hated the title, he hated the content, uh, he hated the news coverage of the book. Uh, and he called it a work of fiction and, and attacked us personally as stone cold losers and a bunch of other names. <laughs> so you're right that we were a little surprised that he agreed to talk to us for this book, but we're, you know, we're fair journalists. And if we're writing about a subject, we of course want to be able to interview that subject. And so we made a, why, why do you think he did? Well, we agreed. made this request to him and, and surprisingly he agreed right away. And um, I'm not sure exactly why, but I think it's a combination of factors. I think, first of all, he wanted to have a say. He wanted his voice in our book. He thought he could, you know, by talking to us, probably not persuade us of his worldview, but at least have his worldview reflected in our narrative and, you know, soften the, the book to some degree, which I, I would argue uh, he did not achieve that. We, we, we wrote the book we believe to be true. But I think the second reason is, frankly, he was bored. He was down at Mar-a-Lago, no longer president. He didn't have the daily, you know, back and forth with reporters that he was used to at the White House. Uh, and he misses that. He missed the engagement. He missed the confrontation, the hostility. Uh, and he agreed to have us down. He also agreed to have down um, a whole bunch of other book authors, uh, other journalists and non-journalists who were writing books about him. Uh, he did interviews with, you know, many of them over the course of the spring down in Florida. Uh, it just so happens that his interview with us was the longest of any of the ones that he did, according to his staff. I'm not sure why. Uh, and and as he finished the interview, he, he came by and, and told us, you know, I really enjoyed talking to you. It was an honor. And it's a bit of a sickness, which uh, seems to have been a pretty accurate reflection on his part. <laughs> um, but, you know, he knew exactly who we were. He said it was we an honor to talk to you and yeah. it was a bit of a sickness? It was a bit uh, of a sickness. What, what's he referring to? that the fact that he enjoyed talking to people like us for so long oh, is okay. a sickness <laughs> because he knows who we are. We're not, we're not sycophant journalists. We don't work for Fox news. We're, you know, tough, yeah. hard-nosed reporters who'd already interviewed 140 of his <laughs> administration officials who told us what was really going on behind the scenes. So it's not like he was going to pull a fast one on us and get us to change our, our story in any way. But, you know, he seemed to agree. He seemed to, uh, to enjoy it. 
I want to ask um, both of you about the the last chapter, not the epilogue, which we talked about, but the last uh, chapter of the book, which really the sort of, um, well, the January 6th uh, recounting, which was riveting and, and, and cinematic in your uh, retelling. And the question I want to ask both of you is, you know, the House Select Committee investigating January 6th, they've had their first hearing. I believe there may be another hearing uh, in August, but there will be uh, multiple hearings uh, uh, going forward. If you were in charge of the House Select Committee uh, investigating the events of January 6th, and let's start with you, Carol, who would you most want to hear from, and and what unanswered questions would you want to explore uh, and shed light on? Because I think there still are unanswered questions um, about what went down on that day that are important. So uh, you guys really dug into uh, the narrative. What would you want to know? Who would you want to hear from, Carol? Um, I wish, I mean, again, I would stress under oath, I would want to hear from the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who was meeting and at the president's side in the days before January 6th and on the day of January 6th. Those days beforehand seem important to me because many of the president's allies were arranging those, those, those protests. Well, well, who financed the protests? How much did the White House know about the violence and the 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 arm arming <laughs> that this group was was bringing along with them how much sort of i don't know medieval hand to hand combat had they been warned about ahead of time um i think that that's critical and understanding the president's actions that day also we have a good idea of of several moments in time with the president in the oval office that day his gleefulness as he saw people charging up the hill, including committing felonies by pushing past police and bear spraying their way in. He, we know a little bit about how he became concerned when violence actually unfolded. As it was described to us, his reaction was, oh, crap. Not, oh, crap, I've got to do something, because it took him hours to actually issue a statement to his followers. But oh crap! This doesn't look so good anymore. Well, actually, you know, you 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 have a you guys have a nugget that I think has not gotten much attention. It took a long time, a, a lot of badgering from his daughter, from Ivanka, from other aides to get him to do that video statement in which he finally said to his supporters, "Go home." You point out that there had to be three takes, presumably because he wasn't he went off script. He wasn't willing to say the things he needed to say. Do you know what he? what he said in those in those two other versions that's the white whale right that we would love to see the outtakes uh and yeah. unfortunately we haven't but um the the version of the rose garden video that was released was the one that his advisors felt was the most salient and you'll keep in mind that you know that video got a lot of criticism because he he buried the lead, as we put it in journalism. He talked about how much he loved these people and, and about the election fraud and, and that they were warriors before actually telling them to go home. So trying to take stock of where we are right now and Trump's future and his hold on the Republican Party. And this is one of those, you know, is the glass half full, is full, is the glass half empty. 19 Republican senators voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, despite Trump's opposition to it and calls for uh, all Republicans to oppose it. That seems a sign that the party, or at least on the Senate side, seems to be moving away from Trump or he's got less of a hold. On the other hand, there's the House Republicans who continue to seem to be in lockstep with him. What's your sense of whether Trump's hold on the Republican Party today is holding steady, gaining, or slipping away? And then that leads to the inevitable question is, is he going to run again? Um, I think I'll try to take that backwards. Um, okay. When we sat down with him in March in Mar-a-Lago, uh, we heard a man who sounded like he was running. We heard a man who he he could have been head faking us, but he seemed very much like a guy who's not going to be satisfied just being a kingmaker. Very proud, by the way, that he's able to 
summon all of these individuals to Mar-a-Lago to, to kiss his ring, to seek his endorsement. Very proud. He says, you know, you look at the numbers. If they don't get my endorsement, they don't win. He said, I'm not trying to be braggadocious. It's just true. Um, so he's very proud of that. But, but satisfied with being a kingmaker, I'm not so sure, based on some of the language he used about running. Um, and at your first question about the hold and power, Mike, is important. I don't have, you know, the most instantaneous polling numbers, but what you can see is that Kevin McCarthy wants to be the leader of the House and all the Republicans around him are want the House to be in Republican hands and they have a chance in a midterm election and everything that Donald Trump wants them to do is what they do. An indicator that he still has an amazing sway over the voters who elected him president and the first time and the second time, that those folks still reject, you know, some key facts that are just demonstrably true. The election wasn't stolen. There was no evidence of fraud. Masks work. The coronavirus was not a democratic hoax. All truisms that most of us, or at least most people who listen to this podcast accept, uh, but um, clearly there's another world out there, and uh, those folks could definitely benefit by reading all of the details in I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year. Carol and Phil, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. This was great. Thank you.